Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hi Buglers, it's producer Chris here. Andy is on holiday still trying to de-cricket himself. When he's successfully de-cricketicised himself, we'll be back with some of the greatest Bugles of all time, probably in early September. In the meantime, you still want new Bugle action, right? So here are some bits we deliberately held back for you to enjoy. Starting with Andy, Chris Addison and Hari Kondabolu. Cancel culture news now and a, a chemical weapons expert has been fired from a conference after it emerged that he'd posted tweets that were, uh, brace yourselves everyone, slightly critical of the British government. Um, this is, uh, I mean, slightly uh, Kafka-esque. Um, if Kafka had begun his story as Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into someone who was no longer going to be an expert speaker at a government-backed conference. What happened to me, he thought. Oh, I remember. I retweeted a meme showing Peter Rabbit devouring a lettuce with Liz Truss's face on it. Um, and this is essentially what what happened. It was the Chemical Weapons Demilitarisation Conference, which is not, as some thought, um, an unexpected sponsorship deal in non-league football. It was, in fact, a meeting of experts to talk about how to defend yourself against chemical, biological and other naughty weapons um, and uh, attacks with pieces of fresh fruit, I think. Um, the London-based uh, weapons expert Dan Cajetta had been due to speak at the gig but was de-invited. Now, did it count as being cancelled, Chris, because this uh, expert, Dan Cajetta, was not instantly given a talk show on GB News to complain about being cancelled? So does it count as a full cancellation if that didn't happen. No, absolutely not. Order, isn't it? I, I think I find the procedural aspect of it odd. I don't know why the government needed to vet his social media feed. If they're wanting to know who's said their shit on social media, they just need to know who's got social media <laughs> of one to one. <laughs> Including a lot of Tory MPs who just keep, yes. keep, keep um, you know, basically saying, we are f***ing shit, don't vote for us. Uh, which... and, the, and the old minister. Yeah. I listened to, um, you know, there's the Johnson biography of, the, of his time at number 10, uh, uh, just published by Anthony Selden and Raymond Yule. And I listened to it rather than read it. And the there's a lot of that text which is just written in a, quite a neutral tone. But whoever was reading it really fucking hated Johnson. Because <laughs> it's, it's like 11 hours of sarcastic yeah. narration. <laughs> Phenomenal. At which point Johnson said he was too busy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I fully recommend. Uh, I mean, it's the, the latest instance of someone being uh, being deplatformed. Um, and yeah, we are. Yeah, we, we we live in nations famous for our tolerance of free speech. I'm personally a huge tolerance fan. I demand that everyone else tolerates things just as tolerantly as I do. And if they don't, and they should be. Uh, put into a special pod and fired into f***ing space. There is no place for the intolerant in my Britain. No arguments, no second chances, f*** off. So, uh, obviously, it would be nice um, to say, well, in terms of this cancer, that, that, that Chris and Hori were our absolute first choice for this week's Bugle, but we had actually booked the Pope, Barack Obama, Beyonce, and British comedy legend George Formby. Sadly, we did have to, have to cancel them for being respectively... Con uh, we did have to cancel them for respectively controversial views on birth control, being a cricket sceptic, insensitive lyrics about whether or not people are ready for jelly and not responding to his emails. So, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tough world. Everyone, everyone can be cancelled. You know, it doesn't doesn't take a lot. Uh, we are just hearing, in fact, that high board diving in next year's Paris Olympics will be rebranded as deplatforming. 
uh, to fit with the current trend. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Tough crowd. Uh, finally, uh, this week, um, some news from India. Uh, Anuvab uh, Pal alerted me to this this story. A government official in India has been suspended after he ordered a reservoir to be drained because he dropped his phone in it. Um, the uh, food inspector called Rajesh Viswas was taking a selfie, as you do when you're in front of a reservoir, otherwise how do you prove that either you or the reservoir really existed? He dropped his phone into the water, at which point he had two options. Option one was to think, oh, that was careless. Oh, well, it's only a phone. I can get another one and learn a valuable lesson about not taking selfies near reservoirs without attaching the phone to a flotation device, just in case. Or option two, empty half a million gallons of precious, life-giving, farming-assisting water out of the reservoir over three days of pumping in an effort to A, find the phone, and B, hope that being underwater for three f***ing days hadn't in some way damaged it. This is one of the most sensational pieces of of desperation phone retrieval in the proud history of humanity. What this? This is why you gotta back stuff up on iCloud. (laughs) Like, this is... This is what happens. Also, uh, what's on that phone? <laughs> something's some, some, some yeah, yeah, yeah. on that phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is he had backed oh, up onto was... iCloud, but the iCloud then rained into the reservoir. That so was. Uh... Everybody <laughs> <laughs> knows that the, the tip is, isn't it? If your phone gets waterlogged, the best place to dry it out is in a pile of rice. So if you're going to drop your phone in a reservoir, India's probably a pretty good place Perfect. to do it. The dilemma, of course, is that you need to get your phone to get the rice delivered. So, <laughs> this is why I have to stick with landlines. You never have this problem with a landline. You drop a landline phone in a reservoir, you can just pull it out by the cord. <laughs> <laughs> How would you drop a landline in a reservoir, Chris? What circumstances could that happen in? Well, if you're, if you're using a landline next to the reservoir right. and you're being a bit careless and it goes in the reservoir, I don't know. How much more straightforward that could be, Andy? You can't, you can't take a selfie with a landline. Well, what kind of attitude is that? <laughs> That's the kind of defeatism that has got Britain to the trouble it's in today. The younger buglers are now Googling hoarded <laughs> <laughs> phone. <laughs> Those three people have pressed pause to Google hoarded phone. The age, the three, 21 to 35. Yeah. My my children, who are fourteen and seventeen, um, uh, they um, they cannot get their heads around the idea that you used to use a dial on a phone. I've I've sort of demonstrated to them; they cannot get their heads around it. Lost, it's a, it's a lost art, like stained glass window making or cathedral building. Yeah. <laughs> all witchcraft trial holding. <laughs> they all come back though. They all come back. You can do a little. You could probably do it on a on a stag weekend, couldn't you? Learn to dial a phone. <laughs> I'll build a cathedral. <laughs> More future of humanity news now. And, uh, well, all of the, what we've been talking about might be uh, completely moot because it's quite possible that we will have been, uh, well, brought to an end as a species by a war with nature. Uh, nature's creatures are starting to take vengeance on humanity for all the wrongs that have been committed over uh, recent uh, millennia. Um, in particular, uh, an orca off the coast of Spain, um, a vengeance fueled orca, no less, by the name of Gladys, or as her friends call her, has been wreaking havoc on the yachting community. Uh, won't someone please think of the yacht owners? Uh, it's uh, 
Well, it's a harrowing story, this. Uh, things are getting very, very awkward indeed off the coast of Spain. Gladys, the self-styled Liam Neeson of the mega dolphin world, was uh, <laughs> apparently hit by a yacht. And after copping a bit of a, a yacht whacking, rather than brushing it off as an unfortunate accident, has gone orc about and solemnly vowed not to rest until all yachts are dead. Now, obviously, we humans know that yachts are inanimate objects, albeit female ones. But if you're an orca, you could be forgiven <laughs> for thinking that they're jumped up pricks who couldn't give a shit about you and your aquatic mammal friends. Whereas, in fact, that, that is just the owners. But anyway, Gladys has struck back by orcaring three yachts, sinking two of them. Those are pretty good stats. That's... Uh, what, batting 6-6-6 for the season so far. If she can keep that up for the whole summer yachting season, she could easily win the coveted MVO uh, award. I mean, this is hugely worrying, uh, isn't it? Because not only is Gladys on the wet warpath, but she's apparently sparked a wave of copycat or copy orca uh, boat clonkings and is apparently training <laughs> other orcas to attack yachts. I mean, This is not... Where is it going to end, good. Right. This is a good thing. This is a one. First of all, I've never wanted to make a Pixar movie so much in my life. Like, <laughs> this is the kind of art I'd like to make. Secondly, notice that it's yachts. It's a, it's not fishing boats or smaller vessels. It's yachts. This is the kind of political revolution I've been waiting for amongst the members of the animal kingdom. Gladys was traumatized by a boat hitting it. Now training others to ram these yachts. And also, it's not just think about the training. On one hand, you're like, okay, it's clearly she's training them for violence, but it's not a pointless violence. It's not just fueled by vengeance. Divers found copies of the autobiography of Malcolm X, the Communist Manifesto, and the Art of War by Sun Tzu <laughs> in the waters where the yachts were hit. So, I mean, clearly this is something bigger. This is what we've been waiting for. Right. Well, I think, I think you might be right, because the article in question suggested that the orcas were after revenge for being trapped in illegal fishing nets, which rather begs the question... How did they realize the nets were illegal? <laughs> now, we know that orcas are highly intelligent creatures, as you point out, Hari, and we know, we know that in the same way that we know everything that we've learned about nature, which is because David Attenborough told us. <laughs> Given that these orcas are so intelligent, it's entirely possible that they've had some kind of legal training, probably starting in a school of fish, they in the University of Dolphins, where they'll have got a degree in the Faculty of Huge Humanities, before going on to <laughs> Shale Law School. And the likelihood is they aren't ramming the boats at all, just trying to deliver a summons, or as they're better known to the underwater legal community, a subpoena. Perhaps, given the orca's <laughs> intimate knowledge of and presumably respect for the law, all that's really needed here is some kind of strongly worded cease and desist letter. <laughs> Well, orcologists claim that Gladys, who is described as being black and white with fins, aged between 0 and 100, over 20 centimetres in length and of no fixed abode, uh, has been uh, training these other orcas to attack yachts. And there must now be concerns that renegade gangs of gorilla orcas and their Dolphinian and Bellinian buddies could soon bring an end to all shipping, if I may exaggerate slightly, which, given that we, we live in the 20th, 21st century, I emphatically may. Um... I mean, and also, you know, if this this copycat behaviour spreads not just within the orca community, but between species, mm. we're in trouble. I mean, if, for example, pigs learn these same vengeance skills, we could be heading for a very uncomfortable bacon blowback and sausage reckoning in the not too distant future. And <laughs> I'm not happy about that at all. I do feel if we are 
truly in a war with nature. The government should be cutting out some kind of information in the mould of the old nuclear war protect and survive booklets <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. You know, just simple advice like if you encounter a tree, remember it's probably more scared of you than you are of it. <laughs> just lie down and wait for it to go away. You know, if an animal is threatening you, try neutralising the threat by domesticating it. For years, packs of ferocious wolves would slaughter and eat humans, but now they fit in the handbags of Kardashians, can only be fed steamed pack choy, or they succumb to the kind of violent liquid diarrhea that's very hard to scrub out at the bottom of a Gucci quilted leatherette tote. The same is true of plants. Domestication drastically reduces the dangers. There have been very few sunflower-on-human homicides since we started using them as a staple crop, unless you count the few hundred people who die each year choking on muesli. that's just darwinism isn't it um yes you know so we hear a lot about humankind's war on nature yeah right and if you believe the news coverage it would seem to suggest that we're very much winning that but that said i regularly drive three miles to buy sacks of specially formulated gravel which i bring home and place in trays my cats then shit in the gravel and I clear out the shit and eventually the gravel washing and cleaning the trays before the whole cycle begins again and I have to drive another three miles to pick up more of the gravel. So I'd say nature is doing better than most people seem to think. They've basically managed to get a ton of their guys behind enemy lines and have us set up entire shops full of food, bedding and toys for them. <laughs> well, that's harrowing. Uh, we will, of course bring you weekly coverage of the final climactic war between mankind and nature uh, over the following 3,000 years on The Bugle. Some more secret gems now. We've got Alice Fraser, Anivad Pal and Andy. Technology news now and scientists, them again, have done something useful for once in their stupid f***ing lives and found a way of turning humid air into renewable power. Uh, We uh, on the Bugle uh, have documented many of the more ludicrous scientific discoveries and uh, alleged breakthroughs, but this, Alice, uh, seems to be something that could be genuinely exciting. So could we soon, once this technology is harnessed of turning humid air into electricity, could we soon all have our own power stations in our gym kits so when we work up a sweat, we can power a coffee machine or a developing world village, according to choice. Uh, yes, Andy, as, as, as again the dildo manufacturers declare, wetness is power. And a team at the University of Massachusetts uh, apparently have successfully generated a small continuous electric current from humidity. And they published a paper back in May, and since then they've made a device that's the size of a, a thumbnail. It's one-fifth of the width of a human hair and is capable of generating roughly one microwatt. Uh, which is enough to light a single pixel on a large LED screen. But uh, this is very promising, according to a number of other scientists who are looking at similar ideas. It's just the idea if you can create energy out of the humidity in the air, it's going to be incredibly environmentally friendly if you don't count how costly and energy intensive it is to make the devices and how difficult it might be to scale them up. Still, it's a really lovely idea and arguably a good thing that maybe a billionaire could invest in instead of machines for shooting themselves into the most inhospitable (laughs) parts of the atmosphere or Earth. You know, just a suggestion. Um, So will we all be dangling our mobile phones over pans of boiling pasta to give them a quick recharge so we can then post Instagram stories about how our hands and arms have been scalded by steam while we made pasta? Uh, (laughs) Is this the future, Anivab? You know where this all started, all of this, I can power my laptop with my sweat thing, you know? 
There's, I've, I've got one. There's always one person to blame for everything. Uh, for this, I'm blaming the Serbian inventor Nikola Tesla. Oh yeah, so he's he's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> he's the one. He's that's of course Elon Musk, Alice's favorite, named a car after him. He believed that the Earth was basically a large battery, and you could charge either end of it, and everything in the air around us could be used for electricity. Like that's the, like, the a lemon. like a lemon. <laughs> I just feel like this is, you know, again, really hopeful technology. And but, but as somebody who's fairly cynical about human nature, I can just, I can just see this going badly wrong, and people, you know, trying to steal each other's clouds and fighting over vaping, and like, just maybe, maybe we need to back off this until we've all calmed down a little bit. All right. But was it California last week where? Uh, one particular street, uh, the street lights went off because too many people were charging their cars, <laughs> <laughs> taking it from the lampposts. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, there's always skeptics, isn't there? We have the same with solar and wind, and you know, people saying, "Oh, yeah, what if the sun's not shining or the wind goes off?" Or and it'd be the same with this. You know, what about when it's dry? What then? So we better open a few more coal mines as a cover bet. And also, we always got to think with any scientific breakthrough, we have to think of the sci-fi end game because. You know, anything can always lead to disaster in the end of humanity. And I just can't see anything other than this leading to rogue electrified microbes in the air growing to 12 trillion times their normal size and eating their way through Manhattan. Um, <laughs> is there anywhere that won't happen? I mean, <laughs> direct correlation. Direct cor- and on the other hand, I've always wanted to be a cloud farmer. It looks fun. It's just so hard to train the dogs. <laughs> Well, they're, 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 they're easy to train on the ground. It's just once you shoot them into the air with a trebuchet that things go wrong. Yeah, that's basically what the, the Soviet space program was all about, <laughs> cloud farming. I, I live in the technology capital of the world, and every time I step into a hotel in India, there are all these conferences going on for different companies. 15, 20 years ago, I'd be able to recognize the conferences. It'll say, steel industry meet. Uh, last week, I went into a thing, and it just said, conference cloud question mark (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what the future of indian technology is but i I figure it is it's going to be a lot of words next to words that don't mean anything well that's that's a great future now it turns out that i mean this discovery was uh, sort of accelerated or or even happened because of an accident it wasn't you know deliberate piece of research but they've sort of something accidental happened and they've picked that up and, and run with it and it's like many of the great scientific breakthroughs famously penicillin um, Alexander Fleming left a pencil in his lab overnight and when he came back in the morning it had turned into a jar of pills um, <laughs> gravity, I mean if Isaac Newton hadn't had a snooze under an apple tree we'd still all be floating around in the air and snooker would be a very different and even more difficult game um, x-rays, they, they came from an, uh, an accident Do you yes. know that? no um, I didn't know that the uh, pervy German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen was trying to develop a way of seeing through people's clothes uh, he went a step too far and enabled doctors to look right through to people's bones instead uh, microwave ovens, Percy Spencer trying to develop a machine that could turn an insect into a superhero by blasting it with magic rays. Almost worked. Instead found a way of cooking sweet corn quickly. And um, LSD, of course, that was famously discovered by accident. Albert Hoffman in the 1930s had been tasked by the MCC and the Marlborough Cricket Club who uh, who formulate and, and, and guard the laws of cricket uh, with finding a way to make cricket more exciting by finding a replacement for the LBW law um, uh, that also had a convenient three-letter acronym. So he came up with LSD after initial tests proved a bit too exciting for the crowd and players alike at a Gloucestershire versus Northampton second eleven trial match. The experiment was quietly shelved and they tweaked the LBW law instead. 
Reptilian Messiah news now, and uh, scientists in Costa Rica have documented a virgin birth by a crocodile, a female crocodile living in isolation for 16 years, laid an egg uh, that had a stillborn baby crocodile in it. But this essentially raises a lot of questions that you know that this this crocodile, without mating, could give birth to. I mean, does it mean that Jesus was a crocodile? Uh, does it mean, I'm coming at this from a, the lapsed Jewish perspective, that you know a, a crocodile is is now the best we can hope for uh, for our long-awaited uh, Messiah, or is it simply a sign of crocodilian evolution? Because let's be honest, if you're a female crocodile, you ideally want to be able to breed without having to um uh, c congratulate with uh, a, a, a male crocodile because let's be honest they are not the most attractive species each of their own obviously but i can see why a lady crocodile might want to breed unaided i mean they're not exactly leopards or parrots or mandarin fish or sorry am i sharing too much um i, f I feel like everyone is missing the lead here what we have discovered is an invisible crocodile right <laughs> i mean that's yeah Oh, you're going. Yeah, I mean that's very much the 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 Sherlock Holmes approach when you've eliminated uh, the impossible. Whatever's left, however improbable, must be must be the truth, or whatever it was that uh, that Sherlock so famously and fictionally said. Uh, but I guess also, if you're a crocodile, and you've been in isolation for 16 years. You must be bored out of your reptilian mind, surely. I mean, <laughs> because I mean, what do you do? And the novelty of sneaking up on a log, pretending to be another log, that must wear off pretty quickly. Um, I mean, how do you find fulfilment in life as a crocodile in solitary confinement? Aside from looking askance at stuff, um, I mean, and writing sonnets about loneliness to perform with Morse code clacks of your crocodiles. I mean, there's all else to be doing, isn't there? Well, I mean, it, and it does cast some light on the on the commentaries of the Bible and so on and so forth. Nobody hitherto knew that uh, while Jesus uh, was very able to bite down. Um, if you could keep him from opening his mouth again by just holding his uh, nose and chin. Um, <laughs> With just two fingers, incredible. Right. Well, you know, I'd once gone sightseeing uh, to the southern Indian temple town of Hampi, uh, which is infested with crocodiles. And uh, the tour guide said that that particular day's tour was off because crocodiles were sightseeing. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it all depends on what you're willing one to do One day they as look a crocodile. at us, one day we look at them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. At th that particular day, they wanted to find out about the 7th century Vijayanagara Empire. <laughs> and a group of crocodiles went about in the Indian sun to do that. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are ways to keep yourself busy. You know, just because you don't have Netflix <laughs> doesn't mean you can't get out. That's all I'm saying for crocodiles. <laughs> Um, uh, you mentioned well the, the wildlife in India. Um, uh, an elephant in India has had been having a bit of a tough time uh, of late. And if I just bring bring us up to date with uh, with the ordeal, big story this one. Uh, the elephant's name is Arig Komban, which almost sounds like something out of a Bruce Lee movie. Um, and Arig Komban, there's a big fight about this elephant. It's it's a single elephant. It's not part of a herd, and. He's from the state of Kerala, but basically he's been going into Tamil Nadu, which is the neighboring state, looking for vegan meals. Uh, it's been eating a lot of rice, 
lentils, vegetables, so much so that, you know, various forestry officers in Tamil Nadu have captured him, sent him back to Kerala. He keeps coming back looking for rice and lentils. And I'm wondering if this is even an elephant or a millennial who lives in Brixton <laughs> or Notting Hill. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what kind of elephant this is. Uh, well, so, yeah. If they find an avocado stone, they'll know. They will know. <laughs> There's a petition in the Madras High Court uh, seeking compa- compensation for the damages that the elephant has caused in Tamil Nadu. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they are looking for damages from the government rather than from the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a tough time. Captured twice, tranquilised, moved home. I mean, that's going to be one vengeful elephant they've got on their hands. This does feel like this elephant could become the Liam Neeson of elephants and no one wants to see that. <laughs> And the thing is, it keeps coming back to Tamil Nadu for meals. Like, it hasn't... I mean, yes, it's ransacked a bunch of agricultural land, but it's, it hasn't attacked any people. You know, it just keeps going back to the same villages and granaries and restaurants. Right. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the food the food in, in that part of India is delicious. But I would say the food in Kerala is yeah. delicious. So, I mean, the food in Tamil Nadu is, 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 is equally... T- I mean, so what, why, does the ele- why is the elephant rejecting... Carolyn cuisine. I mean, we've just got an ungrateful Keralite elephant. That's what we've got. I mean, I'd say, you know, Kerala has a range of great non-vegetarian food as well. It's got right. some excellent beef curry. Yeah. In, in some way, it's got, almost got like sort of a, a rebellious cuisine, you know, <laughs> against the, the, the powers that be that are saying we have to be vegetarian and Hindu. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's a very nationalistic elephant. I don't know what it's trying to do. Uh, but in many ways, its diet is very, very modern. You know, it's it's uh, looking for dairy-free, uh, you know, uh, vegetation and rice. I mean, yep. you know, it's it needs to be on Instagram Reels, if anything. In other Indian news, um, Narendra Modi, the uh, uh, Prime Minister of India, has been visiting Aus- Australia. Uh, how has uh, how has this gone down? I mean, it's inc- it's an incredible thing to witness, Andy. Yes, uh, Prime Minister Modi is in Australia making deals about imports, exports, immigration, and having what appears to be an embarrassingly nice time. Uh, he's he's being cheered in stadiums of two thousand people. There's a lot of like smiling photo opportunities. On one hand, for Australia to be in good trig with major superpowers and massive countries is a good thing, given our presently prickly diplomatic dance with China, but. Given Modi's complex approach to such things as ethics, honesty, and civic responsibility, it does feel like we're being a bit too enthusiastic and providing too many photo opportunities that may come back to bite us in the future. I have a quick question for you, Alice. Um, Now, as you know, Prime Minister Modi has has played, quote-unquote, the Madison Square Garden uh, to 100,000 people. He's played Wembley Stadium with uh, David Cameron, where David Cameron spoke in Gujarati and they riled up the crowd together. In Sydney, I've never been to Sydney, but he played something called Kudos Arena, uh, 20,000 people. Uh, is that a big gigging arena? Like, would, would, would he be up there with Elton John or... Or Our arenas are constantly being renamed as various people uh, fight to stop sponsoring them. Um, <laughs> but this is the this is the arena that Bruce Springsteen played. Uh, so it's sort of a large capacity arena. And our Prime Minister Albanese uh, said the last time I saw someone on the stage here it was Bruce Springsteen, and he did not get the welcome that Prime Minister Modi has got. Uh, of course, uh, Modi played all of the classics. Um, <laughs> 
being in a truck on an Indian road, uh, my girl's gone home with her ex-boyfriend and I'm yeah. having him tracked by uh, government forces, you know, just the, the real ones that everyone really loves. Um, but uh, everyone was incredibly enthusiastic. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a nice time for Modi and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's correct. <laughs> I mean, you just named some of my favorite songs. I mean, I like the pre-remix version, but that, that one is a, is a good one. He, uh, apparently one of the things he did was have a lot of anecdotes for Albanese about Indian street food. Um, and Albanese didn't have an, e I guess, equal number of anecdotes of Australian street food. Um, <laughs> so he just interrupted his speech and just said, Modi wins this food thing we're having, this competition, and he's the boss. And he just called, he kept calling him the boss. Right. Uh, I, I don't know if that's an Australian term of endearment. And well, that's Bruce Springsteen's uh, nickname, isn't it? The boss. <laughs> so we might just, maybe that's just what he always says to people who are in that particular arena. Just in case. Or, I mean, the problem with Al Anthony Albanese is he's um, he's quite cool, which I think you should avoid <laughs> by uh, being a politician if you possibly can. Uh, in other Australian news, uh, Alice, um, I, I hear that Australia is well banning Nazi symbols. Is this, do you think, uh, too early or or maybe maybe <laughs> too late? Well, yes, Andy, Australia Nation of Naysayers is about to say nay to Nazi symbols, passing legislation to ban the sale and trade of Nazi memorabilia. Uh, I mean, this is, first of all, most states already have a ban on the display of Nazi flags and symbols in public spaces. Uh, this is going to ban the trade in uh, Nazi symbols. Exclusions include things like religious, educational, artistic purposes, which is good for those in religions who were using swastikas before they were cool. Uh, which is to say before they acquired their current unfortunate word cloud of associations. I just, look, I don't know. I am generally consider myself more on the side of free speech than not. Uh, as someone of the first generation of teens with untrammeled access to an internet our parents barely understood, there's stuff that I was exposed to that I feel in retrospect I ought not to have uh, been exposed to. Um, on the other hand, I don't know that the problem is the symbol. Like I don't think Nazis were bad because of the swastika. Uh, so I'm not sure that banning the swastika will necessarily uh, ban other people's um, affiliation with Nazi ideology, particularly given you know access to the internet. On the other hand, if you're a small business innocently going about your work as a swastika salesman, <laughs> I do think you should be encouraged to diversify. <laughs> I mean, also, I mean, whether you should ban the sale of Nazi memorabilia or just ban anyone who shows any interest in buying nazi memorabilia um i, I guess you know that's a, that's a, i mean a semantic thing i guess but you know I, I personally you know if someone is hovering over the bid button in an online auction on some nazi memorabilia then they should just be taken politely to one side and told that they are never allowed to speak to anyone ever again or leave their house and then i think you know we have the freedom and we have control and also, it's quite a wide-ranging set of things, Nazi memorabilia. I remember, Andy, I think you were doing commentary in Pakistan at some point, and you sent me a link to a clothing shop called Hitler's Things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what it was, a fashion shop. Yes. It might just have been called Hitler, actually, um, <laughs> or Hitler Clothing. Um, yeah, driving through the streets of Karachi. That was, I mean, uh, unexpected, certainly. And it didn't appear that the contents of the shop had been influenced by the name, luckily. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, maybe... I mean, maybe <laughs> they were snappy dressers. 
It's possible that Hitler liked a um, you know a, a, a nice summer dress. I don't I don't know. I don't know. But it was a bit of an unexpected shot front. To see. I mean, for a while, Mumbai had a cafe in two thousand seven or eight called Hitler's Cafe. And it was an espresso place. And the owner was a, a millennial. And he was confused as to why there was so much ruckus. And he said, I don't understand. We just sell espressos. I wanted an avant-garde name. <laughs> In uh, further news of the robot takeover, um, classical music has been rocked by the news that conductors are set to be vaporized by alien robots uh, in the near future. The first step towards this was a robot uh, conducting an orchestra in Seoul in South Korea, but it seems that uh, the vaporisation of all conductors by alien robots is therefore now inevitable. I guess it raises the question, do orchestras need conductors? Um, Is it not time to see what these so-called professional musicians can do without an eager maniac waggling a f***ing stick at them? (laughs) Is this not progress? I think so. I mean, I think you're talking about this thing in Korea recently, the Korean Industrial Technology Institute came up with a conductor that conducted the main Korean national orchestra in Seoul on Friday evening. Uh, It was called Ever Six. That was the name of the conductor. Did a pretty good job. There was only one complaint from the musicians that the robot couldn't listen. (laughs) (laughs) And that tends to be a small problem as a conductor. But then they spoke to one person in the audience, one Ludwig van Beethoven, (laughs) who said, that's okay, neither could he. (laughs) So that's not an impediment to making great music, apparently. I mean, ironically, in Seoul, the the robot conductor without a soul uh, (laughs) led the performance by the South Korea's National Orchestra. It's a a pimped-out metronome, right? It's it's a pimped-out metronome that's meant to look like a person and is just going to make everybody watching the performance feel really sad. (laughs) Uh, Its name is... uh, Ever six, and the orchestra leader Choi Su Yol, who worked alongside the robot, said that uh, he was able to present the detailed moves like a conductor would do much better than imagined. Um, but on the upside, uh, also, it can't be a dick, and you know, composers. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? We all know composers. Leonard Bernstein, Zubin Mehta, com- supposed to be complete, terrible human beings. <laughs> All the great conductors are apparently insufferable. Well, yeah. any 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 elephant riders in the bugle audience will know that you know the conductor is the mahout, right? They think mm. they're in charge, but the the orchestra can go out of control at any time and just trample you. Yeah. So it's a dangerous position to be in. I think we should be replacing these kind of dangerous, like mining and conducting, um, very very dangerous. Uh, yeah. I'm but just glad was... the word mahout is making a comeback. That's... <laughs> Thank you, Alice. Um, also, I mean, I, I mean, I do think it's progress in terms of you know, the the quality and focus of orchestras. Because if you're third violin, and frankly, n- no one can hear if, if you are or aren't playing, you're going to make damn sure you come in with your twiddly-twiddly bits at the right time if you have a robot conductor who can instantly vaporise you with a death laser from his battle. <laughs> yeah. No more drifting off trying to remember if pizzicato is an Italian snack or not, uh, whether you want your pasta andante or allegretto for dinner. Or whether all bassoon players nickname their instruments Beakfried or not, and if not, why not? You're going to give you're going to give your full undivided attention to your robot von Karajan. You're absolutely right. I, I've, every time I've seen a classical music concert, I've thought, why is there not more violence? Yeah. Yeah. Blind, <laughs> blind, ugly violence. You know, if your cello is off, your second cello is off. <laughs> I think under fear of death, uh, music yep. gets a lot better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's quite dark. but I think history would probably back you up on that (laughs) and other art forms as well Uh, poetry for example Mm -hmm. exhibit one, the first world war Um, (laughs) 
The OECD has re- released a report saying that um, this AI revolution that we, we, we talk about so much now, uh, the jobs most at risk will be high-skilled jobs, such as orchestra conductor, lawyers, surgeons, weather forecasters, rock drummers, human cannonballs and cricket statisticians. It could all be on the way out. Uh, but AI won't be bothered with the less skilled jobs, such as nightclub bouncers, toilet cleaners, or <laughs> podcast hosts. So I'm half okay and half in trouble. Um, I mean, this is—is is this a worrying sign? Apparently, that already the robot takeover has barely started, and already they're being picky about what jobs they do. They only want the nice jobs, and we're going to have to rely, it seems, on cheap imported robots to do the jobs that our entitled Western affluence-affected robots don't want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a terrible thing. Back in my day, you know, a robot would just do what a robot was meant to do, which is sort of suck dust off the floor or, you know, um, steal your children away to take them to the Goblin King or uh, create an ethical conundrum that meant it had to murder an entire high school. You know, just that kind of thing. It's kind of classic robot stuff or, you know, befriend a child in a slightly creepy way and go to outer space. Like, just really proper, proper robot things. And now I feel like they're Getting, yeah, as you say, above themselves, they're getting prestige focused. Yep. I, I feel like uh, we, we need to get put them back in their place, yep. Andy. Put, put them, back, put in them place. back literally in their box. Yep. When it comes to objective things, like yep. say, like cricket statistics, the argument has been that artificial intelligence will not have the human consciousness to give it empathy. You know, so maybe the future of critical statistics, having you right. spent you've spent your life in this, yes, uh, would be more. Empathy, human consciousness, right. more literature surrounding okay. cricket statistics. So I need to start doing my stats in, you know, in sonnet form or something. <laughs> or burst myself. out crying if yeah. you're very unhappy. <laughs> well, I do that quite often when England are playing. One very quick final story. Um, well, we've been doing a lot of stories on uh, on new technology and, and AI, and there's uh, reports this week that technology that can reveal your private thoughts is not very far away from being developed and indeed perfected. Um, in fact, I've got a prototype. I'm, I'm really not sure what I, what I think about technology like this, um, so I'll just use the technology to find out. Turns out I'm terrified of it. Um, and, and, you know, that's just for me. I mean, my private thoughts are not particularly unexpected. Alice, Anivab, um, I mean, you can probably read my private thoughts right now. Just, just give it a go. Family what? brain, Andy. <laughs> I think you're doing the podcast, but you're thinking, was Colonel Gaddafi a real colonel? <laughs> uh, well, no, but I mean, the ashes starts in uh, three days' time. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about cricket, to be honest. Um but it might, it might have quite useful political applications, you don't think? Um, you know, to know what candidates are really thinking when they're when they're. If you you know, if they had a special helmet that you know actually, rather than them saying words, the helmet just spoke their inner thoughts. We might avoid some of the uh, the issues we've been talking about in this episode. So bring it on. I mean, a lot of political memoirs, when you read, you know, all these books of presidents and prime ministers after they leave office, you know, you think they'd be filled with lots of insight and stuff. And Obama's, there's a lot of petty detail, like, you know, uh, the whole time David Cameron was talking, I thought his fly was down, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) Like, it's not great grand thoughts. That's what's really (laughs) unfortunate. That's it. Your lot. Remember, Live Bugle, 16th of September, London. Be there or I will be sad.